John 15. We begin at verse 12 in that uh, passage. Uh, in the upper room, uh, the, the night our Lord was betrayed and uh, the evening before his death on the cross, he's instructing his disciples. And we get to hear um, the word of God from his lips here. John chapter fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are asking you to bless your word. The words from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. We pray your truths will penetrate every heart in this room. Do in us what is needed for us spiritually. Equip us as believers that we may edify one another in the local body of Christ. Rivet again our minds on the eternal truths that these verses relate to us. May they deepen our understanding of what you've done through Christ. May we continue to revel and relish in the reality of our salvation. We give you glory and praise for all that we've heard already. And so we pray that you continue to minister to us. You might glorify yourself and that Christ may be glorified in his church. Use this preacher. He stands in need of your help. And we pray you do these things. In the name of Christ, amen. Marks of the Friends of Jesus is the title for these verses this morning. The Bible presents two kinds of spiritual friendships. One of them is friendship with God. A notable biblical example, of course, is Abraham, who is called in the Old and New Testaments, the friend of God. God Scripture says, also spoke to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. The other kind of spiritual friendship is not with God, but it is with the world. Such people are hostile to God and are designated enemies of God. Those who have the right kind of spiritual friendship, one with God the Son, It's explained in our text by our Lord Jesus Christ. The text before us unfolds the marks of the friends of Jesus. To say it this way, we'll see in our exposition of these verses, the features or the characteristics that characterize or define those who have a friendship with Jesus, those who have uh, designated by him this exalted title. 
We'll begin with the first mark, and that's our heading. His friends love one another. And we find that in verse 12. When Jesus says what he does, that we just read a moment ago in the first clause of verse 12, he reiterates the command he gave his disciples in John 13, 34. Also, he reiterates it in verse 17. This command, I command you that you love one another. We could put it like this. The friends of Jesus are to love other friends of Jesus. That's the reality of, of being his friend. You, you will love other friends. In fact, that's the reality of being born again. For 1 John chapter 5 verse 1 says, you will love those who are born of the Father. This love is a volitional love. The love that our Lord is talking about here. It's a love of the will. It's a love of choice. This love, according to Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, is a love that will not do harm to others. It will, do not, it will not do harm to his neighbor. There in that passage I just alluded to, the Apostle Paul lists some sins that are harmful, that are injurious to others, and love will not do that. It does no wrong to a neighbor. This love will, in fact, the love that our Lord is commanding his disciples, and by extension all of us, is to seek to do what is the highest good for the one loved. To meet the loved one's need. This love is to be mutual. Mutual. All of us are to be engaged in loving one another. That's why he says that you love one another. There are no exceptions. If you are a friend of Jesus, you are not exempt from this command. If you belong to Christ, this applies to you. If you belong to Christ, you will seek out to love your fellow friend, your fellow believer. That's the reality. Now, something else we need to notice here. Jesus, as I mentioned a moment ago, reiterates in verse 17. He says you're to command one another, uh, love one another. Why does he do that? Because in verse 18, if the world hates you, and it will, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The reason we need to love one another, because the world is not going to love us. We're going to need to retreat to love that's in the body as the world hates us because we follow Christ and the world hates Christ. We are to love one another in a world that hates those who love Christ. That's why he's saying that. So our, our love for one another helps us in a world that hates us and hates our Savior, our Lord, our Christ, and hates his truth. But in the church, we find love. Find love. John 13, 35. In fact, Jesus says that, that, that when we love one another, that's a powerful apologetic or, or a defense for the reality of the fact that we are Christians. That we belong to Jesus. Think about this. When the world sees us loving one another, they have to conclude, based on what Jesus teaches, that we belong to him. That we're his. Now, in verse 12, we see something that's important and we, we must underscore it in our minds. We see the standard. 
of this love, just as I have loved you. These words comprise a standard for the friends of Jesus to love other friends. In fact, the love of Jesus Christ for us is the measure that we use to evaluate our love for one another. You get that? You look to Jesus and he is the standard. He is, he is the, the measuring stick, if you will, for how we're to love one another. Look at him. Are we loving like him? In the local body of Christ. Or anytime we're with Christians. That's how we're to love one another. That's what he says. Just as I have loved you. Now you need to understand that these words here. Just as I have loved you. Anticipates our Lord's words in verse 13. There we see him unfold the uh, standard. He explicates the standard. He he gives the extent of the standard, his love, how he has loved us. Let's use this as a heading for verse 13. His friends are the objects of his saving love. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus articulates here the supreme expression or demonstration of love. He says, greater love has no one. There there is no love that can top the love that he defines here. It is the greatest love. And what is that love? It's the one who, uh, that love is, it lays down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. And those words lay down are unique to John's writings. <clears throat> Not only in the Gospel of John, but in 1 John, we find him using those two words, lay down. And these words refer to Jesus' voluntary, sacrificial, substitutionary, and propitiatory death. When you hear him say, lay down, understand that's what he's doing. He is talking about his death on the cross. He voluntarily did it. It was a sacrificial death. It was a substitutionary death. That is, he was in our place. It was a propitiatory death. That is, he propitiated God the Father. He appeased him by his death. So his death encompassed this. He did it on our behalf voluntarily and it pleased God the Father. That's what was happening when he laid down his life. Now, in that passage in John chapter 10, when I mentioned that, John 10, 10 and verses 11, verse 15, verse 18, if I didn't mention them, I am now. He was laying down his life, and later on, he talks about, he does that, that he might give to his sheep. That's us. It's another title for us. Eternal life. What a friend. He gives us eternal life. You, you can't find a friend like that on Facebook. Your BFF can't do that for you. Only Jesus Christ, our saving friend. Why do you do that? Because the greatest need needed the greatest sacrifice. Our greatest need was a savior from sin. 
Jesus alone could meet that all-important spiritual need. No one else was qualified to meet the divine requirement. We needed a perfect sacrifice. God would have nothing less than a perfect sacrifice. Only a perfect sacrifice could qualify. You see this in the instructions in the Old Testament, in the ritualistic offerings of the uh, lambs and the rams and the grain. They had to have uh, be marked by perfection. God laid down early on as he was giving revelation about how you can come to him and receive forgiveness and have your sins dealt with. The sacrifice that that substitute, whether it be a lamb, a ram or whatever it was, had to be without blemish. God then was teaching. There's somebody coming. It's a foreshadowing of somebody who is coming who will be the perfect sacrifice. Therefore, Jesus was qualified to lay down his life because he was the perfect one. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 says this, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. End of quote. When it says just there, in this passage, he is saying that Christ is righteous. And when he says unjust, he is talking about us. We were unrighteous. So the righteous one had to die for the unrighteous ones. And Christ voluntarily, substitutionarily, did that that he might bring us to God. What he means by bringing us to God is this. He brought us to him spiritually. We were far from God. Not spatially speaking, but spiritually speaking. Ephesians tells us that we were far from God. We weren't near him. In order for us to come to God, we had to have somebody to bring us to him. We couldn't bring ourselves to him, so we had to have a mediator to stand between us and God, and that mediator would go and get us by his death and bring us to God when we believed on him. So he brought us to God, spiritually. But it doesn't stop there. All of us are going to die. Amen? You can say yes. Unless the rapture comes, we're all going to die. But since we've already been brought to God spiritually, since we're already his, since we're already, let me add this, united to Christ, since we belong to him, one day, even if we die before the rapture, we will be brought into God's presence in heaven. Because what he did on the cross for us. When you, uh, in a moment, Take this. Take these. Remember, that's what he was doing for you, bringing you to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a profound, profound reality. He made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus Christ 
knew no sin. What he meant meant by that doesn't mean he didn't understand what sin was. It wasn't mean, doesn't mean that he didn't have an intellectual comprehension of the horrificness of sin. He could define, he knew more, all about sin, but what he means by this is that he had no experience of sin. He was sinless. We've alluded that already. He had to meet that basic requirement. He had to be the perfect one. But God, in a remarkable re, exchange on the cross, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You say, how did he do that? You know, I don't know. I, I can't plumb the depths of how on the cross when Christ was dying there and the people around him mocking him and when the, uh, the sun was blotted out for three hours and the wrath of God was poured out on him because he'd been made sin for us. I don't know how God was doing that. All I know is he said he did it and I believe it. That's all I need to know. Now, here's the, 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 the reality about this. By him doing that, he treated him Christ the way he should have treated us we really are the ones who should have been on that cross we're the ones who should have had the wrath of God poured out on us we're the ones who should have been separated God not from God not for three hours but for all eternity so he treated Christ the way he should have treated us so that we might the text says become the righteousness of God we were unrighteous, I already said that, right? <laughs> but he granted us a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that, that is not inherent to us. The fact we had no righteousness. All our righteousness were as filthy rags. Uh, they were repulsive in God's sight. All we could offer him was self-righteousness. God said, I can't take that. Your righteousness is polluted by your sin. So I repudiate that. But so what God does in his wonderful wisdom and infinite understanding and his marvelous grace, he says, I'm going to give you divine righteousness. Righteousness that I can accept because it's my own righteousness. So what he did, he credited to us his righteousness. And if you're a Christian this morning, what you are is a person who has imputed righteousness, Christ's very own righteousness. Is there any wonder that we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus? <laughs> there is no friend like him who went voluntarily in our place. We're to love. Now, do understand something. We cannot love one another redemptively as our Lord Jesus Christ did. We can't die for another sin. That, that's impossible. But Jesus loved us sacrificially, did he not? First John chapter 3 verse 16 says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his love for us, uh, life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren if we're called upon to do so. That's the extreme end, and there could be a case where we would do that, say, no, no, I'll die instead of my brother. But... 
the reality of this is also seen in this love for our brother in this in first john chapter 3 verse 17 but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of god abide in him the reality is that his brother, if you're in the body of Christ, will love one another to the point where you see there's a need. You meet it. You got the goods. You got the money. You have the resources. Meet it. It's expression of the love of God in you. Now, let me, let me reiterate as we continue further. His friends love one another. His friends are the objects of saving love. His friends obey him. Verse 14. This is the third mark of Jesus' friends. You are my friends if you... You. Second. Or this is the third friends I'm making sure you get this you are my friends if you do what I command the you in the Greek text is emphatic it's emphasized by Jesus you You need to keep that in mind. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's how you know you're his friend. It's one of the marks. If you do what he commands you. <laughs> All who truly are Jesus' friends submit to his lordship. They obey him. This, this reality of obedience to Jesus separates us, this friendship with him from ordinary human friendships. Being a friend to Jesus is different from having any other kind of friend. I don't know about you, but I never received a command from a friend. And if I had, I wouldn't have obeyed it. <laughs> They say, hey, we're on equal footing. But Jesus commands and we comply. There is an inequality in the friendship due to inequality of the friends. And what do I mean by that? This is it. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the creator. Even of his friends. John 1, 1 through 3 tells us this. The first John 1, verses 1 through 3. He is the eternal creator. We are temporal. He is from heaven. We are from the earth. He had to condescend to make us friends. He had to lift us up. The friends of Jesus, further have genuine saving faith. A genuine saving faith uh, is linked to obedience. The connection between belief and obedience 
is seen in the experience of the Israelites in their wilderness experience. And I'm going to look at a passage. You'd like to turn there with me. You may. Hebrews chapter uh, 3. I want you to see the connection between uh, saving faith, genuine belief, and obedience. You cannot separate the two. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, I, verses 18 and 19, those two verses I want us to focus on and pull out the truth that I'm enunciating here um, that shows belief and obedience go together. Verse 18 of Hebrews 3. It's talking about the Jews in their wilderness wanderings. Why they spent 40 years there and they died, the generation 20 and beyond died there in the wilderness, with exception of the few that you know about if you know biblical history. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, that is in the promised land, he's talking about ultimately spiritual rest for the people in the New Testament era, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because, you see the word unbelief. There is a connection between being disobedient to God and unbelief. When a person truly believes God, he will obey God. When a person truly believes Christ, believes in Christ, has genuine salvation, that person will obey Christ. That's an example of the Jews. There's another. First, let me tell you this. Obedience to Christ does not produce salvation. Obedience is evidence of saving faith. It is the fruit of saving faith. It is not what grants saving faith. You don't obey to get saved. You obey because you are saved. Abraham believed God. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he was declared justified, a saved man. In James chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, his obedience to the command of God to offer up Isaac demonstrates the genuineness of his salvation. It gave evidence that he really belonged to God, that he really was justified. That's what happens if a person really belongs to Christ there will be obedience so in our passage here in verse 14 you are my friends if you do what I command and do understand that in the upper room discourse you will hear where Jesus talks about loving him and equates it to obedience it's the reality let's move to the next mark Verse 15, his friends received divine revelation. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. His friends received divine revelation. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' relationship to the same. Let me deal with this very first issue that hops off the page at us. We're slaves. Jesus' relationship to the saved is as a master and slave relationship. Now, let me reiterate what I've said about this before. For those of you who never heard it, or, um, or you need to hear it um, again, 
as I've said before, the term slave has a negative uh, connotation in America because obviously uh, the slavery that took place in this country for 246 years. We must div divorce that negative association from the words usage in scripture from what transpired here in America. In the ancient world, slavery, unlike the North Atlantic slave trade and slavery in the South, was not racially based. All ethnicities were enslaved. In fact, in the Roman Empire, there are 60 million of them. In the world of the Bible, that's the way it was. It's even economically related. It's an economic system as well. Now, let me say something to you. Um, spiritually speaking, all men are slaves. You say, how is that? Either you're a slave to sin and righteousness, or you are a slave to Christ. There is no in-between. When you were born, you were born unsaved. You didn't know you were born a slave. Y'all with me? Amen. Your manumission from slavery to sin came when the great liberator, the Lord Jesus Christ, liberated from us, broke our spiritual chains, and now we are free, and yet we're slaves. We're free from sin, but we're slaves to Christ. What a wonderful reality. Free from sin, it's horrible binding reality but we are slaves to Christ we're free from unrighteousness but we're slaves to righteousness we're free from not being able to obey God not wanting to now we are enslaved to God and wanting to obey him in Christ depicts our saving relationship slaves being a slave of Christ is like uh, the titles sheep or branches, living stones, lights in the world. All those depict our relationship to Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll tell you something fascinating. This is gonna, I think this might blow your mind. I've set you up now. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies of the suffering servant, as those verses are called, Isaiah. Those chapters. In Isaiah 42, a part of the suffering servant motif that runs through some verses there in Isaiah, the latter part of Isaiah, it's about Christ, our Messiah. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says this, Behold my ebbet, whom I uphold. The Hebrew word, what that means is my slave. In the prophecy of the coming suffering servant, who, who is none other than Messiah, Jesus, that text, Yahweh, the first person of the Trinity, calls Messiah his slave. I figure if Jesus will take the title slave, it's okay with me to have it too. 
is no shame to be identified as a slave if Jesus is too. We just qualify. We understand it's not some evil practice as was in this country and other places in the world even to this day, but it denotes a relationship that we have with our God and our Savior. That's the wonderful reality. Now I'm telling you, here in the text, Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Jesus is not terminating the slave metaphor here. He is not saying you're no longer slaves. He's not ending that. And the reason we know that, because in the rest of the New Testament, for example, the Apostle Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and John continue to refer to themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. Dulos. In fact, in John, in the book of Revelation, the first chapter of Revelation, uh, he refers to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and he calls them the slaves, plural, of Christ. So that is a term, a term terminology that belongs to us who are believers. And when you read in your New Testament, I have a New American Standard, it'll say bondservant. Really, the word is slave. And the reason they didn't want to say slave because of the connotation as we've already discussed. And they, that was not a good idea. Just, what does the word say? Besides, the Bible's written before America was founded. I was thinking about the U.S. Now I'm going to tell you what Jesus does here. You'll notice something in the, our text. It's clear. The reason he no longer calls the slaves is because slaves don't know what their master is doing. They're not privy, they're not as confidant. But Jesus is saying here, but I have called you friends. And this is the reason why for all the things that I have heard from my father have made known to you. He has given us divine revelation. Christians have information that non-Christians do not have. We have insight that they do not have. In Mark chapter 13... Verses 10 and 11, it says this, and the disciples, uh, Matthew uh, 13, verses 10 and 11, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. The reason you know the things of the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual mysteries, is because it's been granted to you as a child of God. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. We know and understand spiritual truth. What the Father gave Jesus, Jesus has given to us, and so we're brought in to his confidence. He, he has told us all of these things, and we have it here in the Word of God. We understand it by the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. Well, let's move further. Verse 16, his friends are sovereignly chosen by him. This is the fifth mark. You know what would happen when you find out you know something better than, that, know something other people don't know? You can think, well, of course, that's, that's true, because the reason I know is because I'm smarter, I'm wiser, and I made better choices. Jesus said, not so. The reason you have privy, you're privy to these things is because, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Thank God he chose us. If you're a Christian this morning, the reality is that left to ourselves, we would reject 
and not choose Christ. In fact, we did not have the ability to choose Christ. Totally unable because we're dead, were dead in transgressions and sins. We couldn't have chosen him if we had, he hadn't chosen us. In fact, if you are not a Christian, ask him to cause you to have the new birth because only he can do it. Only he can save you. That's why he says, I chose you. I chose you. The word uh, chose is to pick or choose or pick from a group. What's that group? The group of humanity. Lost humanity. The verb form in the Greek text allows for the rendering, I chose you for myself. The same Greek word and is used in the middle voice in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 referring to the Father's choice of some human beings to be saved. He had to do it. The choosing here then, of course, is salvation. It's a sovereign choice. Christ had the right, he had the authority, and he exercised it to save some. And he appointed them. Disciples in particular appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Appointed, that is, for service. They were to go into the world and bear fruit. That is, make disciples. Let me tell you this how you, you want to do something that's going to last forever. Do you? Amen. Go make a disciple. I hear all the time, like you do, people always say, but I just want to make a difference in the world. Let me tell you something. That, that can have its place, but let me tell you something. Everything you do in the world, apart from what God is doing, is not going to last. But if you go out and make disciples, you present the gospel and a person trusts Christ and they're saved, that's fruit that will remain. Because that person will be in heaven forever. You can take all your money and give it to some organization in this world. One day, it's not going to exist and your money's going to be gone too. But the person you won to Christ will live forever in heaven. It's fruit that remains. See, what you want to do, you want to have a biblical perspective on life. You want to think biblically. You want to think the way God thinks, the way Christ lays out here for us. You want something that's going to remain? You want an eternal legacy? Present the gospel, and when they come to Christ, that's what you got. And this is linked to uh, prayer, by the way. See at the bottom of the verse. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Prayer and evangelism go together. They're inextricably linked. We pray, Father, we want them to come to Christ. Father, bless my outreach, my testimony to Christ, my witnessing. The Father says, that's what I want. <laughs> I want to save them too. And he blesses it. Let's conclude this. What a privilege to be called the friends of Jesus. No better title than to be called a friend of Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's who you are. And you thank him for the reality. In Jesus' name, we ask you, Father, to take these truths and deeply, deeply bed them in our hearts for your glory, for our advancement and growth, for our joy. In the name of Christ, amen.